ghosts, cryptids, murder, conspiracies, beer, what, the, ale. Hello, friends. Good morning. <laughs> uh, welcome to our February keg. I'm Alana Ray. And I'm Mama Jane. Um, and I just want to, before we get into our topic, I want to ask any what the ill moments this week. You know, I, um, I checked our numbers yesterday. And so I have a very happy what the ale. Did you realize that we have listeners in 15 countries now? I didn't. I mean, I saw that we have some listeners in Japan and some in, um, Singapore, which I wanted to like give a little shout out because we hadn't yet. But outside of that, no, I didn't yeah. realize 15. Wow. So girl, we got listeners in Belgium, Germany, France, Russia, Sweden, Finland, India, Singapore, Japan, and Morocco, UK, Germany, Croatia, Canada, and of course the US. So Ooh, we got thank Canada you all too. so much. Yeah, yep. thank you, friend. That's really, really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I'm traveling to Japan and South Korea and China in uh, June. So if y'all got any stories you want us to cover for our June episodes, let us know, because I'd love to cover something from those areas. I definitely have a story I want to do from Japan, but it's a real downer. So (laughs) (laughs) well, we'll save that for June when I'm traveling. Okay, sounds good. Um, But yeah, very cool. I'm yeah, I was noticing that. Um, Let's see. I what the ale moments this week. Um, I think a very easy one is that in a couple hours I will be getting another tattoo. <laughs> okay, my sibling, which I'm very excited about, because um, they turned 18, and we wanted to do a little sibling tattoo, and it's going to be we're getting big and little dippers, and I'm really excited. So, yeah, that'll be cute. <laughs> and the 18 year old has only been. 18 per month and this will be their third tattoo <laughs> yeah because they're crazy but they yeah, are it's okay. happy for sure you know that's okay I'm letting them enjoy yeah. it <laughs> yeah um okay well any drinking anything exciting mama you know since it's the morning I'm just having my coffee because I needed a little bit of caffeine so mm-hmm. yep what about you I we are in the same boat I am having a cold brew so yeah definitely having some coffee it is not too early but it's a Saturday morning so beer something sounded a little wild right now (laughs) yeah but I'm super excited to have a lazy day today because I hardly ever get lazy days and I literally have nothing that I'm required to do today so I'm super excited for that (laughs) those are the best days the best days ever yeah well, do you want to get into our case for the week? Yeah. All right, friends. So we decided because it's Black History Month here in the U.S. and um, all the things we should do some cases of, you know, Black folks um, that are either unsolved or, you know, maybe urban legends, that type of thing. Um, so we decided to do a bit of a heavy topic. There's lots of, you know, child murder, lots of very, very hard topics in this one. Um, but we thought it was necessary to cover the Atlanta child murders or the AT kid case. Um, Mm -hmm. if y'all think that sounds familiar, um, it was pretty heavily featured on um, Netflix's Mindhunter. Um, so some of this info may sound a little familiar to some of you. Um, and I'm going to be covering just the, you know, basic, like, you know, the victims a little bit about, where they were found, that type of thing. And mom is going to cover the theories and suspects. So I am very excited to hear what she has found. Um, And something I do want to say is I know that this topic is very heavily debated and it is very sensitive to the Black community as well as the community of Atlanta. So we're going to be as respectful as we can in terms of, you know, sharing the theories and suspects um, without really taking a stand on it um, because we really just want to make sure we honor, you know, the lives that were lost in this case. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Are you ready, Mala? Yeah, I'm ready. Go ahead and get into it. All righty. So from 1979 to 1981, over 30 black children, teens and adults were murdered in Atlanta and 
the cases have never officially been solved. Um, and so this is probably one of Atlanta's like largest, you know, quote unquote, cold cases. Um, and we're going to put that in quotes because we'll kind of see as we go on. A lot of people think that it's technically solved, but there's a lot of debate about that. <laughs> um, so to start off, um, on July 28th, 1979, Edward Hope Smith, who was 14, and Alfred Evans, who was 13, uh, they were found after being missing for about a week or three days, respectively. Um, they were found in a vacant lot on the side of the road. Um, Evans was killed by asphyxiation and Smith had been shot. Um, and, you know, at the time, I don't know about, you know, Atlanta's stuff necessarily, but it is in the South. There is a lot of racism down there. Um, so I think it was kind of just kind of understood that it was, you know, a tragedy, but, you know, it was kind of just linked to racism, right? These young boys who were murdered, which is doesn't take away from the fact that these are just children being murdered. Um, but then we move into September of 1989, when on the 24th, Milton Harvey, who was 14, went missing, and he was riding his bike. Um, he was found on November 16th, 1979. And upon autopsy, it was found he had an undetermined cause of death which is really sad. I'm not sure if it was because he was, you know, his body may have been more decomposed or if it was, you know, um, you know, maybe untraceable poison or something, but they were not able to determine how this kiddo passed away. Um, and there's actually quite a few undetermined ones in this case. So <laughs> just be ready for that. Um, and so the next month in October, uh, on October 21st, uh, Yusuf Bell, uh, who was nine years old, disappeared and was found later that day in a vacant school, um, and his cause of death was strangulation. Um, on March 4th of 1980, the first girl um, who has been linked to this case was Angel Lanier. She was 12 years old. Um, she disappeared and was found on March 10th, and her cause of death was asphyxiation. Um, on March 11th. So these, I mean, well, I was going to say, and in terms of like serial killers, I mean, these were so many kids and so mm -hmm. close together. Yeah. Like it is crazy how frequent these dead children were turning up. I mean, it, it yeah. like it was well, unthinkable. Even, like, yeah, you even look at like Ted Bundy, um, for example, and like he was, you know, active for like seven years, but he nothing was really as close together as some of these cases were or multiple children being found in the same place or things like that. Um, so yeah. it is really, yeah. I mean, this was, you know, and again, the black community in Atlanta was like, we are being targeted, you know? Um, and we'll get into that kind of, as we get more into what I'm going to talk a little bit about, like what the FBI was kind of thinking, um, or like how the task force was created and everything, but I wanted to get the victims out of the way and then we could talk about yeah. like more of that stuff. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's just so close together hitting this community so hard. I mean, only like a year and a half, I think was the actual um, timeline and, you know, you have 30 kids. I mean, that's just so horrible. Um, yeah. But okay. So on March 11th of 1980, um, Jeffrey L. Mathis, who was 10, went missing. However, he wasn't found until February 13th of 1981. Um, and I think because his body was so decomposed, his death is undetermined. Um, on May 18th of 1980, Eric Middlebrooks, who was 14, was found um, with blunt force trauma to the head on the next day, so on May 19th. Um, June 9th, 1980, Christopher Richardson, who was 12, um, he disappeared and he wasn't found until January 9th of 1981. And it was another undetermined death. Um, another little girl, Latonya Wilson was seven um, and she disappeared from her bedroom on June 22nd of 1980. Um, and she wasn't found until October 18th of 1980. And she was also undetermined. When most of the kids were kidnapped, like while well, walking to the store, or just hanging out in the neighborhood, right? It was like not yeah. typical that they were taken from their home. 
Yeah. So she, as far as I can tell, I think she's the only one that was like actually taken from her home. Yeah. The rest were, like you said, kind of like the kid was riding his bike. One was walking to school, like that type of stuff. It wasn't. Yeah. Um, well, and the, you know, I really want to, you know, cause I'm a, I'm a child of the eighties and everything. And like, it was so normal back then that parents would send their small children to the store to pick up milk or whatever, you know? And so, I mean, as a kid, I remember walking to the store and picking up things for my parents at, at a very young age, like elementary school age. And I walked to school, you know, and all the things. So, you know, I mean, all of that was just very, very common and, you know, you felt safe. Like that was your neighborhood. Like you didn't think anything like this was going to happen. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, like I said, this case is really heavy and still haunts the city of Atlanta to this day. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really, really tragic. Um, okay, so on June 23rd of 1980, Aaron D. Weichie, or W-Y-C-H-E, I think it's Weichie, but I could be wrong. Um, he was 10 years old, but he was found the next day uh, strangled, um, on July 7th of 1980, Anthony Bernard Carter, who was nine, was found stabbed. Um, on July 31st of 1980, Earl Lee Terrell, who is 10 years old, disappeared, and he was found on January 9th, 81, also undetermined. Um, on Jul- or not July, August 20th of 1980, Clifford Jones, who was 13, disappeared and was found the next day strangled. Um, so on September 14th, 1980, Darren Glass, who was 11, what disappeared. However, this is the only child in this case that has never been found. People speculate maybe he was brought across the border, you know, into another state, something like that. But his body to this day has never been found. So, but at this point, murders are happening like once a month, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Monthly, yeah. it seems like a body's being found or a child's disappearing. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, and so then on um, October 9th, 1980, Charles Stevens, who was 12, disappeared, and he was found the next day by uh, and had died by asphyxiation. So at this point, um, we see a slight change in the MO, and you'll kind of catch on. But um, on November 1st of 1980, Aaron Jackson, who was nine years old, disappeared. And his body was found on the bank of the Chattahoochee River, and he had been strangled. Um, Later in November, on the 10th, Patrick Rogers disappeared. He was 16 years old. And on December 7th of 1980, he was found on the bank of the river as well. uh, And he had died via blunt force trauma. Um, On January 3rd of 1981, Luby Jeter, who was 14, disappeared and he was found on the river on February 5th uh, and he had died via strangulation. Um, On January 22nd of 81, Terry Pugh, uh, who was 15 years old, uh, had been found strangled on the bank of the river and he was found the next day. Um, On February 6th of 1981, um Patrick Balthazar who was 13 had disappeared and he was found strangled on February 13th of 1981 on the river so then the lone survivor of this case that we know of um was an unknown boy he was kidnapped on February 11th of 1981 uh he was walking home and had been thrown in the back of a car but he had managed to escape while the car was at a stoplight and we're going to get into it, but the info that he gave um, to investigators actually did match um, the suspect that was arrested on two of the murders that are linked to this case. So, um, like did I said, you, did you, um, in terms of like the bodies being found in the river instead of like the woods or other places where they had typically been found, um, did you see anything about why they think that that happened? Yes, I'm going to get into that when I finish the last few cases, and then I will talk about what the FBI thinks, because the FBI was very involved in this case. Um, but yeah, so this this kiddo had been kidnapped. He thankfully escaped. Um, as far as I could tell, I couldn't find his identity. Um, maybe if you found it, I don't know, but I couldn't find it. Um, but then on February 19th of 1981, Curtis Walker, who was 13, was found dead on March 6th. And he was strangled in the river. 
um, or sorry, he disappeared on February 19th. He wasn't found until March 6th. That was a weird sentence. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then on March 2nd, Jojo Bell, who was 15, disappeared and he was found on April 19th in the South River in Rockdale County. So same kind of MO in a river, but a different river. Um, on March 11th of 1981, Timothy Hill, who was 13, was found or disappeared and he was found in the river um, on March 30th and he had also died by asphyxiation. And then on March 20th of 81, Eddie Duncan, who was 20, um, was found on the 31st. Uh, his cause of death was undetermined, but he was also found in the river. On March 30th of 81, Larry Rogers, who was 20 years old, was found strangled, um, or he disappeared and was found strangled in the river on April 9th. On April 1st, 1981, Michael McIntosh, who was 23, disappeared, um, and he wasn't found until um, 420, uh, and he had died via asphyxiation, and he was found in the South River, so not the Chattahoochee. Um, on April 12th of 1981, John Harold Porter, who was 28, was found stabbed in a vacant lot. Um, and so, or he was 28, not 20, sorry. And he was found stabbed in a vacant lot. So a little bit different, but, um, you know, maybe this was more of a rushed killing is what people are thinking. Maybe the killer ran out of time. Um, well, and he was so much older than a lot of the other people. Yeah, we're going to get into that too. <laughs> So the last two um, murders that are really linked to this case are Jimmy Ray Payne, who is 21. He disappeared on April 22nd, and he was found in the river on April 27th. And then lastly, on May 11th of 1981, William Barrett, who was 17, was found on um, the next day on May 12th by ligature strangulation. Um, so... That's a lot of names. That's a lot of cases. I mean, that to me already is just hard and like just really sad. Um, yeah. But so I want to talk about a little bit of what the Atlanta PD was doing, how the FBI got involved, those type of things. Um, so as I had mentioned, again, a lot of kids were disappearing almost monthly, maybe even a couple times a month. But by July of 1980, 12 kids had disappeared or had been murdered. Um, most had been found outdoors in vacant lots or woods behind houses and buildings. Um, some were found in alleys. You know, they were just kind of found in random places. And then um, the police department, you know, decided to form a task force. Um, but they were not able to make it a federal case because there was no strong evidence of federal violations. So that includes, you know, crossing state lines, um, kidnapping, things like that. But after Darren Glass disappeared, he's the child that was never found. Um, but they could open a federal case because they speculated he had been moved across state lines. Um, okay. So the main theory by APD and the FBI was that the same person or persons had committed the murders. Um, many of the kids were, you know, quote, runaways or hustlers who just kind of were on the street. Um and I don't know if that is necessarily accurate. I think these are really young children who might, like you said, might have been walking to the store or whatever or playing in the street. That was super normal. Yeah. Um, so to me, like someone, you know, coming into a predominantly Black neighborhood and murdering children, I don't know. To me, I'm not going to say that they were hustlers or runaways, but you never know. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I wanted to add, though, is um, that the police for a long time we're trying to act like these murders were not connected and yeah and you know whatever and it was actually Yusuf Bell's mom Camille yeah. mm -hmm. that was like insisting that they see these as connected mm -hmm. and that she um you know she was part of the committee to stop child murders you know and that was mm -hmm. like a lot of the parents or just concerned neighbors and things like that yeah. that developed mm -hmm. that group and that group put pressure on the police to develop the task force because the police were not doing it yeah, well, that, I was about to say, I was going to say this was largely in efforts to, you know, the victim's parents yeah. who had formed this uh, committee because, yeah, they, like you said, I mean, the APD was not taking it seriously. And again, we can say racism, we can, you know, say whatever, but like, you know, what was it? I said 12 were missing by July. Yeah, 12 kids had disappeared by July of 1980. I mean, that's significant, you know. Yeah, it just um, seemed like the police were like, you know, they just, they, they were not caring very much. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, so in terms of evidence, a lot of green nylon carpet fibers and white dog hair were found on bodies. Um, and the, the bodies that these were found on were mostly on dry land, um, which connected them. So then um, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution published this information and suddenly the MO changed where bodies were found near or in bodies of water. Um, and a lot so of them were found like in their underwear then, right? So then the idea that carpet fibers or whatever would not be clung onto their clothes. Yeah. So a lot of them after were found nude or semi-nude um, because at that point the killer had figured out that fibers were connecting these cases. Um, so then the FBI, like I said, after um, Darren Glass disappeared, they decided to open the AT Kid case on November 17th of 1980. So it started out with Roy Hazelwood, who had come um, in the summer of 1980 to consult on the case. Um, he was from the behavioral sciences unit and he worked as a profiler. Um, so he kind of initially came in and was like, yeah, this case is interesting. Da, da, da. But then the FBI officially got involved and John Douglas came in 1981, um, I believe in January, and he created a formal profile on the killer. Um, and I want to make this clear. This guy is like in Mindhunter, like one of the experts, right? So he had explored the crime scenes, he interviewed citizens, and he also looked at files from over 25 interviews with convicted serial killers. Um, his analysis or assumption was that the killer was most likely African-American or Black. Um, and this was under the presumption that a white suspect could not easily travel within a predominantly Black neighborhood unnoticed, which is a really good point, you know? Um, especially in, it seems like their commit, uh, community was really tight knit. So the yeah. idea that like someone that someone new or an outsider coming in would have been noticed earlier, you know? Yeah. Um, well, you know, and I just want to say, you know, cause our family, we, we are a racially diverse family. And even when we've traveled in white areas, people notice our family, you know, it, and, you know, and I'm a white mother, but, you know, people notice our family. So I think that goes both ways where, yeah. you know, people just notice outsiders or people that are not used to seeing in their neighborhood. So I think that's, you know, a, a thing that happens all the time in both ways. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. It happens all the time. But that's kind of the speculation yeah. that the FBI was running with there. Um, I do want to mention that African-American serial killers are not like, you know, it's not like they're never seen, but they are more uncommon than a white serial killer. Um, and something else the FBI kind of was speculating was that the killer had above average intelligence, that he was articulate and he was presenting um, himself as a figure of authority publicly. So someone that was kind of in the public eye, maybe a community leader, something like that. Um, he also thought that potentially the person was monitoring the news coverage. As we said, the MO changed when the fiber stuff was published um, and that they could have had frequent changes in employment or maybe they were unemployed or self-employed um, and that they had a lot of flexibility in order to commit the, commit the crimes. Um, so starting in March of 1981, African-American boys aged um or who were in fourth through 10th grade. So that's probably about nine to, you know, 15 or 16. Um, they were given an FBI survey asking about suspicious encounters with strangers. And 16,000 of these were returned and 977 warranted a follow-up interview with the FBI. So that's wow. a lot of surveying. Um, they also established a curfew for youth um, under 17. Um, from 7 p.m. to 6 a.m. But again, that kind of is linked to the MO change because you think about suddenly it's like young 20s all the way up to 28. You know, there's that one 17-year-old kid, but suddenly that MO changed again. Um, and then, like I said, the task force um, also established surveillance teams of the rivers to see if they could catch someone on the bridge or, you know, engaging in... Um, suspicious activity near the rivers. Um, and so there were 12 bridges on both the South and the Chattahoochee rivers. Um, and they had officers stationed at either end of every bridge. So for four weeks, this 24 seven surveillance was not working, but on 522-81, 
The men at the James Jackson Parkway Bridge in Northwest Atlanta heard a loud splash in the Chattahoochee River. Um, and a light-colored station wagon crossed the bridge that was stopped by officers around 2.52 a.m. And I'm just going to stop it there because I feel like that's kind of where we get into your piece, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, and, you know, I also want to add that that was the last night they were going to do that because, you know, they had had no luck. They were like, maybe, you know, maybe we're wrong or, you know, whatever. And so that was the last night they were going to do it. So, you know, I mean, it's morbid to think that they were kind of lucky that that happened that night because this person, who you know, is the main suspect, you know, would not have been caught if that hadn't happened that night. Yeah, because they were going to Um, okay. And I think I'm going to add a few more details that are important, um, that lead us up to the bridge, um, just about some of the, the kidnappings and witnesses. So there was one witness that saw a man with a baseball cap and possibly a scar on his face. Um, and this was around the the time that, uh, Luby Jeter was kidnapped. And, um, and I think he even said that, I can't remember if he said that he just saw him talking to Luby or that he saw Luby get into the car. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they put out that information and they got a lot of different sketches, um, but none of them were very similar. So it was hard to, um, yeah. I mean, if you look at it I and mean, there was none of them really looked alike, so it was hard to get a real profile. And mm-hmm. the person um, who was found on the bridge, which I am going to bring it back to the bridge and that night when the cops heard the splash, but the person that um, that they found on the bridge was a man named Wayne Williams, and okay. he said he had an alibi for Jeter's kidnapping, that he was at a, re- a recording studio that night, and that he was trying to create a boy band similar to the Jackson 5. And that's something that's like really important to know, because he was somebody that was trying to, you know, kind of be a music p- producer. And so he would often like go to places where kids hung out and that he would hand out flyers to young boys there trying to offer auditions or, you know, promise to make them famous or that kind of thing. And so um, this comes into play the night that uh, Patrick Balthazar went missing, the 12 year old. And this was a kid who thought he could catch the killer and and collect the reward money. You know, he really believed that he was going to be able to figure this out. But there was the night that he was staying out late at the arcade and he was at the Omni. And that's a place where Wayne frequently handed out flyers to young people. Mm-hmm. Um, now, on that night, a white man in a car had threatened him and he had called the police, but they didn't send a car because they thought it was a prank. And then oh. after his body was found, the, you know, the friend that was with him made a sketch of the man okay. and it didn't lead to any suspects, but the same carpet fibers were found. So you know, he's one that, you know, there was a white man involved as a potential suspect. So, you know, it's hard because I mean, and I'm going to get into it, but Wayne Williams is the primary suspect, but there are things that make you wonder about other possibilities. Um, now on the, on the, um, you know, Wayne as a suspect side, there was a woman named Kathy Andrews that kind of worked with him at the music recording studio place. And um, she said that one night he came in and he had horrible scratches all over his arms and he said he fell into a bush, but she said it looked like more like scratches from a fight and she didn't believe him. And that was, you know, shortly after Luby Jeter went missing. So, um, you know, she kind of thinks he was responsible. Okay. Um, And then Joe... um, Eugene Laster was a person who knew Jojo and saw him leaving in a white station wagon. And he mm-hmm. even said he got into Wayne's car and oh, you wow. know, denies that he was ever with Jojo. Um, mm-hmm. But a man later said that he saw a man leaning over the railing on one of the bridges. And that was the same day that Jojo Bell went missing. Okay. And that witness identified Wayne Williams as the person who was on the bridge. Okay. Um, and then, you know, and then obviously a lot more victims were found in the river. So, um, so I'm going to bring us back to, you know, the, the night on the bridge with the FBI. So they, they did, um, you know, a person, one of the agents that was like down on the ground, like on the riverbed, 
he was the one that heard the splash and he radioed up to the cars that were up at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so what they found was there was a car and, you know, the, they saw the car cross the bridge and then they say he kind of like turned around and then drove back across the bridge and he kind of turned around like right in front of one of the cop cars. Mm-hmm. Um, now he denies that it happened that way he said he didn't stop on the bridge that he didn't make a turn right near the bridge he said that he drove across the pr- the bridge and it turned into a parking lot of starvin marvin which is like a little convenience store mm-hmm. uh, and he said that he stopped to call a singer named cheryl johnson who he was planning to meet with that night but i want to remind you this is like three in the morning so the idea that he was on the way to her house or they had some kind of appointment seemed weird. Um, and the police yeah. did not find this person, Cheryl Johnson. He gave an address. There was nobody named Cheryl Johnson that lived at that address. Um, so they oh. think that he just made her up and that that doesn't exist. Um, yeah. I mean, it seems plausible, right. Try to establish an alibi. Yeah. For her reason. <laughs> yeah. So, but the, you know, either way, whether he just crossed the bridge and went to the store and crossed back or he pulled it around in front of the police, Either way, he was pulled over and stopped by the police. Mm-hmm. And um, and when they stopped them, you know, they were kind of like, do you know why you're being stopped? And he said something like, oh, I know it's about those boys, mm-hmm. you know, and and it was like, oh, really? <laughs> like, I think if I was being stopped and I had nothing to do with anything, I would be like, I don't know, speeding or illegal U-turn or whatever, you know, but yeah. for him to say that just seems suspicious. I agree. Like, that is really strange. Yeah. And then he was wearing um, a baseball hat and they said that sort of resembled the sketch given by a witness who saw a man talking to Louis Jeter. Um, Mm -hmm. But like I said, there were so many different sketches. Some of them were white men, some of them were black men. I mean, it just, you know, it's hard to know. Right now the police did make some mistakes in this case. And one of them was the night that they pulled him over. They did search his car and they mm-hmm. found a nylon cord and it was like, you know, kind of like woven and, um, you know, obviously is something that could be used to, you know, um, like as a ligature, somebody yeah, it's like a ligature. And mm-hmm. so they did not confiscate it that night. They just noted that it was there. And obviously it, it was never seen again. Once they let him go, you know, when they looked at the car again, that was no longer in there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there was no body yet found in the river and nobody saw him outside of the car and no one saw him actually throw anything into the river. And Mm -hmm. so they had to let him go that night. But then two days later, a mile from that bridge, that's when Nathaniel uh, Cater's body was found. Okay. And so they decided to bring Wayne back in and he failed his polygraph. Um, the three questions that were asked was, did you kill Nathaniel? Did you throw him in the river? And did you kill him the night that you were on the bridge? And mm-hmm. he failed all three questions and he failed the test three times. Hmm. I mean, and I do want to say, I know that polygraphs aren't admissible yeah. in court and there's a lot of, uh, you know, lots of interesting yeah. questions about the validity of a polygraph. But at the same time, that is interesting that he did fail like three in a row um yeah with questions that if he were innocent you would hope he you know didn't um you know he wouldn't be found suspicious on or you know you know what I'm saying yeah <laughs> yeah so then you know he was arrested and um and then the, you know the the they were having like a press conference and a man named Homer Williams who was a press photographer was actually inside of the building, even though the press conference was taking place outside. And so they asked him like, you know, what he was doing there. And they assumed that he was there to get the story. And they, he said, no, that's my son. And he told the people that were asking that they detained him, his son and impounded his car for littering. And his dad at that point didn't realize he was a suspect for serial murder. He just thought his son was arrested for littering off the bridge um and Wayne denied that his father ever said that you know because presumably that would mean that his dad was like agreeing that he had stopped on the bridge and thrown something over and Mm -hmm. you know that would conflict with Wayne's version that he didn't stop on the bridge at all and he didn't throw anything over so he denies that his dad ever said that Hmm. now they obviously went out 
to the house, you know, to look for evidence. And they did find um, a yellow blanket and the green carpet. And the carpet was a match to the the um, boomerang like carpet fibers that they were finding on some of the bodies. And uh, they did take clippings from the yellow bedspread and that also matched some of the fibers that were found on bodies. Um, and then he had a dog and I know you mentioned the dog hair and they, he did have a dog. And so they collected, you know, uh, fur from the dog as well. Um, now he was released and, you know, he was able to go back home and he made some comments that, you know, kids were just running the streets where they shouldn't be. And he said, he, it's not giving anybody a license to kill, but you're setting yourself up for all kinds of bad things. And it's like, okay, you should you've not got do that. Whole, yeah, you've got a whole community of grieving parents and, and, you know, people that are terrified. And to say something like that, that puts him and it almost makes, you know, blaming the victim kind of vibe. Um, oh, but you so, know how I feel about victim blaming. But I, you know, so I, I just don't think he was doing himself any favors. You know, he wasn't acting very empathetic or understanding mm -hmm. that people were really struggling, you know, with this. Yeah with this, I mean, there's horrible events, right? Um, yeah. And it's hard too, because like, I get the like, you know, if, if he's innocent, like being pissed off that he's being looked at for it and like, you know, maybe venting or letting off steam or whatever could be what that could be seen as. Yeah. But then on the flip, I'm like, that's so insensitive to the families who, you know, you have 30, 30 families that have lost children, right? I mean, that yeah. is, you need to be a bit more sensitive, especially if you're being looked as the prime suspect. Yeah. Now I will say, you know, this is another place where the police made a mistake though, because although they collected fibers, um, like they didn't bring the blanket, the yellow blanket and evidence. And so um, when they did go back, you know, to arrest him for real, when they decided they were going to prosecute um, that yellow blanket was nowhere to be found. So, but like, isn't that standard just to confiscate? Like that is shocking to me that yeah. the police did not think, oh, I'm going to take this blanket that has the same fibers. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> and so of course, Wayne says that the yellow blanket and the um, nylon cord that they found in his car never existed. And that the police just said that they found those things, even though they didn't. Hmm. And again, I mean, if you're on suspicion of murder, you're going to say anything to sound innocent, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's so hard. <laughs> Now they decided, you know, when they arrested him, they only arrested him for two of the murders. I think you mentioned that. So it was Nathaniel and, and then Jimmy Payne. And um, they just didn't feel like they had enough evidence to connect all, all of the crimes. And the main um, evidence that was being used in these two trials was the carpet fibers and, you know, the, the dog hair and things like that. Okay. Um, and so the trial, the, you know, he was arrested on June 21st, 1981, and the trial was set for early 1982. Um, and then, you know, when when the his arrest was like released, FBI agent John Douglas stated that if it was Williams, then he was a, um, looking pretty good for a good percentage of the killings. And, you know, he said this during an interview. Um, in People Magazine, and he was profiling the killer. And, you know, but this was like widely reported and heard. And so it was kind of like he was declaring him guilty before the trial. Okay. And so then um, after he made those statements, he was like officially censored by the director of the FBI saying, you cannot put anything else out there. You know, the trial is about to start and you can't, you know, we can't yeah. like poison the jury, right? Right. Well, that's, that's what's hard though. Cause like, I, like with his profile, Wayne seems like someone that would fit the profile. Um, but I mean, I'm sure you're going to get into it, but weren't like, weren't like Yusuf Bell, like the committee, all of them were like convinced that it was not a black person. Like it was a white person committing the crimes. And so they were like pretty against Williams. Wasn't that like part of, um, well, Yusuf Bell's mom is somebody who absolutely thinks he did not do it. Okay. Um, you know, but there are other people that thought he did. And so, you know, okay. but she, she's still to this day, like in an interview, you know, just a few years ago, she still was saying she thinks he's innocent. And he was just a scapegoat. Okay. Um, and I'm going to get more into it, but there was a lot of, you know, racial things happening. The K 
KKK was very active at that time. There was rumors that they were trying to start a race war. So I'm going to get more into that. Um, But, you know, there, he definitely isn't the only suspect and, you know, but he's the one, the only one that they were really looking at seriously. And I will say that John Glover, who is the FBI chief um, during this time, he moved into a nice white neighborhood. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he's an FBI chief. He was making bank and, um, a white man drove by and threatened his son, like shortly after they moved in. Um, kind of stuff was happening all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, actually threatened to kill his son. And so, right. Well, he was a black man, right? Like we gotta, yeah, yeah, he was a black (laughs) man moving into a fancy white neighborhood. Okay. Um, yeah. So, um, so then uh, jury selection began on December 28, 1981, and they um, the jury ended up being comprised of nine women and three men, um, and eight of them were African-Americans and four of them were Caucasians. And, okay. you know, I think that mix is really interesting only because, you know, we typically think of mothers being very, um, I, know, I mean, I'm not saying fathers are not impacted, but we see mothers as being more um, like emotional or more empathetic or that kind of thing. So it was interesting to me that, you know, nine people on the jury were women. I do wonder what that jury selection process was, like what questions they were asking, what they were looking yeah. for, because that probably was also really tough between the defense and the prosecution, yeah. um, especially with something this high profile. I was glad to see, though, that there were eight, you know, black people and only four white people, only because historically we've seen juries where it's all white people judging black men. And, you know, that never goes well. So I, w- I am glad to see that yeah. that mix was a little, you know, more in favor of a fair trial. Exactly. Um, so the trial only lasted about, uh, the testimony lasted about two months. And um, for his defense attorney, Mary Welkin, this was her first murder trial. trial and Oh, wow. Um, and like I said, the carpet fibers and the dog hairs were the main evidence. Um that carpet, the green carpet, it was only made for a limited time and it was about 10 years old. So it just wasn't very common in that area during the time of the killings. Mm-hmm. And, um, and like I said, the, the yellow fibers on the blanket were consistent with the blanket under his bed that went missing after they released him that first night. Um, so, um, but they, they did look at other victims. So, um, Patrick, Balthazar, Jojo, and Middlebrooks all had those same yellow fibers from that, you know, that was similar to the blanket. And, um, and on Patrick, it had, he had fibers on his body, plus uh, dog hair and leather jacket and green carpet. And there were also two hairs that were in Patrick's shirt. And those hairs, um, they believe belonged to Wayne. Um, and I'll get back into that, but, you know, they could only prove within a certain degree that, you know, they couldn't rule Wayne out. Um, mm-hmm. Wayne, of course, says that he thinks that evidence was manipulated by police and, you know, that things were, you know, placed or, you know, he just doesn't believe, or he says that he doesn't believe that the evidence was actually there. Mm-hmm. Um now there was a witness that came forth and his name was Robert Henry. And he says that he saw Wayne and Nathaniel on the night that Nathaniel went missing and they were walking away from a movie theater where Robert and Nathaniel worked together. And he says that they were holding hands as they walked away. And, um, you know, his Wayne's parents says, no, he was homesick and in bed that night. And Homer, Wayne's dad said that he had the car until about midnight. I mean, the bridge incident wasn't until 3am, but you know, Homer says he had the car. Um, and then there was like, you know, so that was part of the testimony in the case was that Robert saw Nathaniel and Wayne together that night. Um, Would, I guess my question is, is, was he like a hundred percent it was Wayne or was it more of like a guy that looked like Wayne, you know, like he says he was a hundred percent, but then four years later, Robert recanted and said he couldn't be certain that the man he saw with Nathaniel was Wayne. But during a more recent interview, um, he said that the signature on the um, on his like statement recanting 
was his, but that he says the writing wasn't his. And so apparently in the summer of 1986, Robert Henry was in prison um, and he was in prison for sex crimes. And he got a visit from an associate of Wayne Williams. And the person told Henry what to write and then sign, you know, the statement recanting his previous statement. And Henry wouldn't say why he went along with this. Um, but he said it would cause trouble if he talked about it anymore. Mm-hmm. But you know, when being interviewed for, you know, a CNN piece just a few years ago, he says that he is certain it was Wayne and he did pass a lie detector test prior to testifying that that was true. And again, polygraphs are not always accurate, but, um, yeah, I mean, that, that is interesting though. Yeah. Like the, the recanting, I mean, maybe it was like threats on his family or threats on, you know, cause if he was in prison, you know, there, there's not a lot of power there, but that, that, is, that is really interesting that he recanted and then re recanted the recant. you know. Yeah, no, but his, so, I mean, his testimony definitely is part of what probably put, you know, Wayne away, um, you know, but then his, you know, statement recanting, you know, ended up being used um, in his appeals. So now during the trial, another interesting thing that happened was Wayne like blew up during the trial and he was like yelling, you want the real Wayne Williams, you got him. And, you know, he was just, um, yeah, you know, just, you know, he called the prosecutor a drop shot and he says that that means he's just not worth anything, but he also called poor, poor black children drop shots and he did all of this in front of the jury. So, you know, Wayne, you know, Wayne, don't take a hole for yourself, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So Yusef Bell's mom does believe he's innocent, but she said that the outburst is the reason why he was convicted and that he did that to himself. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, you know, the prosecution's case has been criticized um, and, you know, it, it was like, um, uh, the there was two separate FBI special agents testified that the chances of the victims not having come into contact with Wayne Williams was virtually impossible. Mm-hmm. And that was based only on the fibers. Okay. Um, but, you know, after reviewing the case, like the um, Georgia Supreme Court Justice George T. Smith deemed that the evidence or lack thereof should be should have been inadmissible. Mm-hmm. And they were just saying there wasn't enough to convict. Okay. But on February 27, 1982, after 11 hours of deliberation, the jury found him guilty of the two murders, and he was sentenced to two consecutive life terms in Hancock State Prison in Sparta. Okay. Um, and his dad, Homer, walked past the prosecutors and called them sons of bitches. Um, so he was very not happy. Mm-hmm. And um, But there were no other murders of this type after the night on the bridge. Um, and and they said at least no other strangulations. I mean, obviously murder always happens. So there were shootings, stabbings, things like that, but nothing that was similar to the way most of these kids were killed. Okay. Now there was a, um, a justice named Smith who wanted to overturn the conviction, but the other justices have voted to uphold the conviction. And he just said that the fiber evidence wasn't enough. Um, and that the prosecution should not have been allowed to use the pattern of ev- evidence about 12 other murders to try to right. like three because those murders were not a part of the two murders that he was actually being tried for. Um, yeah. Smith was denounced on the floor of the Georgia Senate. And like I said, the justices chose to uphold the conviction. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, I know fiber evidence is, you know, something nowadays that we're looking at a bit more closely as like it can help, but you can't prove that this fiber came from this exact carpet that was at every single Walmart, you know, for 20 years, you know, or something like that. Right. Like they're like, you can't necessarily say, but I also think fiber evidence is telling because it is like trace evidence. Like if a body was in your car and then it is like, it's such a, it's such a like hard topic, but I do, I do think bringing, like, it is not ethical to bring 12 other murders that are not linked to the two murders this person is linked to. Yeah. Like, I think that's not ethical, but it, it's hard. Like, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it is hard because, you know, if so many of the bodies were dumped in the same place and, 
Um, and some of them did, did have fibers or they were killed in a similar way or their bodies were found in a similar way. I mean, it just, it would be hard to not want to connect them, but if you don't have enough to bring those cases to the trial, you know, it's, it seems like they shouldn't be a part of the trial, but, um, now, um, there, oh, there was, um, so, uh, some people say that Clifford Jones murder. Um, now he did have like some similar fibers, but there was a witness that said he observed a coin laundry operator kill Clifford and oh. police, but police said that, you know, he was a kid and police say he was kind of open to suggestions and would say like whatever he felt like he wanted him to say, mm. but the laundry worker did fail two polygraphs and a third polygraph was given by the FBI and he did pass that one again hmm. polygraphs not so reliable um yeah. but yeah so there's a question about whether clifford jones murder was at all a part of this okay. um and then you know but the cases for the other kids were basically blamed on him and their cases were closed even though they did not go to trial and you know not all the evidence necessarily was there um mm -hmm. so a lot of the moms were actually upset that their children didn't get trials and verdicts um, because mm -hmm. even though he would be serving two life sentences, they just felt like, you know, their case didn't actually get any resolution. Well, not, I mean, that sense of justice, right? Like you knowing for certain, at least in the eyes of the law, this person killed your child, I yeah. think is something that should be. Yeah. Like the fact that they were just kind of like, yeah, it's kind of solved. It's like, no, <laughs> like yeah. that's, that would be hard for me as a parent, I think. To be like, oh, it's kind of yeah. solved? No. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, I will say Wayne has changed his alibi. Um, so like the night of Nathaniel's death, he says he was at the Hotlanta recording studio in College mm -hmm. Park. And he said that he was there to turn in an invoice for photography services that he had done the night before. Okay. The owner of the studio says he was only there for a short time and left before nine. And he also said that Wayne was driving the station wagon which would conflict with Homer's story that he had the car until midnight. Mm -hmm. um, and an investigator for the defense said that Wayne told him he did have the car, but that he didn't want to ch challenge his dad's testimony, you know, so that he would show that his dad lied in court. So he just went along with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, Robert Henry at the theater said he saw the two men leave around nine 30. So that also conflicts with Wayne's parents saying that he was home in bed six. So, um, yeah, but Wayne did change his, his, uh, alibi. And then, um, there was, you know, this is a little bit later. So this is after all of the, um, the trial and everything. Um, uh -huh. so they started looking at new DNA evidence, you know, after, um, I mean, just obviously advancements in technology. So mm -hmm. the human hairs that were found in Balthazar's shirt, um, they, you know, they found that the hairs did come from a black man and the DNA sequence that was found. Um, I, I read two different things. One said that it was found in only 29 out of the 1149 samples, which was less okay. than 3% and that Wayne's hair matched that sequence. So, okay. um, yeah, but that outcome, I mean, it doesn't definitively say it's Wayne's hair. It just says he can't be excluded as a right. source. For hairs. So definitive, but not significant but or not definitive, but still significant. And then yeah. in okay. 2007, um, you know, that this is where the numbers are slightly different, but very similar. Um, so it said that, um, you know, it narrowed it down to like 99.5% and that William still was not able to be excluded from that. Okay. Um, now, there's just some other interesting things about Wayne, and he um, he was in an interview with Soledad O'Brien, and okay. she brought up that, you know, there was this, like, kind of like autobiography kind of thing written called Finding Myself, where mm -hmm. Wayne says that he was recruited for espionage training as a teenager, and <laughs> even says that he worked for the CIA. Okay. So, he didn't want to answer any questions about this book, but that he wrote in there that he had weapons training, grenades, plastic explosives, guns, and unarmed combat. And, um, 
And, you know, it said that he, it was like a secret CIA program to train young black men to work in the worst areas of Africa. And, you know, but when she tried to ask him about it, he was just like, I'm not answering questions, blah, blah, blah. And then she was like, well, you were trained in unarmed combat. Does that mean that you would know how to strangle somebody? Um, You know, because a lot of people say he's small and thin and like, he's not strong enough to do that. But, you know, the idea if he had this unarmed combat training, maybe he would be able to, but he just would not answer those questions. Um, And, you know, he just kept saying he's not going to answer, but then he did say that he finished his training and then withdrew from the program. So towards the end of the interview, he said that, but there is no evidence that this training ever happened, you know, so it Mm -hmm. seems like a tall tale. He was you know, just trying to convince people he was more important than he was. Yeah. Do you think his, like, I mean, cause to me, I'm like, well, obviously just have his parents like quantify that. Like you would think his parents would know at least, oh, he was gone for, you know, this amount of time or something, but there was nothing like that that was validated. No. no. Hmm. Yeah. It just seems he wanted people to believe that he worked for the CIA and that he was a big shot. Um, okay. You know, but Soledad O'Brien was like, well, if you've had this training, you would know how to do this. You know, I don't think he had the training. I think that was just made up to make himself look cool. But um, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's interesting and then there, for sure. <laughs> there was um, in 2019, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms um, and the current police chief, Erica Shields, announced that they were going to retest some evidence for the murders. Um and, you know, Mayor Bottom says it may be there is nothing left to be tested, but I do think history will judge us by our actions and we will be able to say that we tried. Um, yeah, so that was 2019. And um, in July 2021, Bottoms announced that the DNA had been identified and sampled in two cases that will be subjected to additional analysis by a private lab. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, you know, as of you know, this article that I was reading in 2022, there were no results that had been made public. Um, okay. And even though the families of the victims have been asking for it, um, there was just nothing else that that became public. Hmm. So, um, as of 2019, you know, he Wayne Williams still continues to maintain his innocence. Um, so I don't know what you think about him as a suspect, but there are lots of fishy things. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, I would say his case is very circumstantial. I wouldn't yeah. say necessarily all of it is like conclusive evidence that like he did it or he didn't do it. I think it's interesting that, you know, the murders did stop after Wayne was apprehended or, you know, at least was on the bridge. Um, and I do think it's interesting that like no real suspects on either end of the spectrum have really come come in or out. <laughs> and so, yeah. I think it's hard, um, but I also think some of the evidence was mishandled in this case, and it's just yeah. really hard to say. Yeah. Now, I do want to bring up the other theory. I mean, obviously, Wayne's been convicted of two, and so, you know, I'm still in jail, but um, the other theory um, yeah. is that uh, there was a secret investigation into the potential involvement of the Ku Klux Klan, and I know I said that earlier, right. Um but this was supposed to be in tandem with like the special task force on missing and murdered children. And they discovered that some members of the KKK may have been involved with the murder of Luby Jeter. Okay. And and may possibly be linked to 14 others. Now story goes that, um, there was a family of clans members that were living just outside of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And these were the group of men that were said to want to ignite a race war in Atlanta. And, um, and then they were wanting to recruit other people to help with that. And mm-hmm. there was a man named Charles T Saunders and he was a narcotics dealer and recruiter for the group. Mm-hmm. And they said that, um, you know, he, had intended to kill Jeter several weeks before his body was found. And that was because Jeter had backed his go-kart into Saunders car. And, um, and Saunders allegedly told the informant that he was talking to at the time, I'm going to kill that black bastard. I'm going to strangle him with my dick. Hello. Yeah. No, thank you. 
Yeah. <laughs> so shortly thereafter, um, Saunders' brother was recorded telling other clan members that he was going to look out for another little boy, you know, so mm-hmm. suggesting that they got Jeter and now they're looking out for, you know, another victim. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the drawings that I said, you know, where, um, the witnesses said that he had like the uh, jagged scar on the neck. You know, that was one of the sketches that came up. Well, yeah. Charles Sonder did have a scar matching that. Oh, and wow. eyewitnesses reported seeing, you know, Jeter enter the car of a white man with a jagged scar on his neck. So, um, mm-hmm. and they also owned a dog sim- with similar hair to that found on Jeter and the other victims. Um, so, you know, it was similar to the dog that Wayne also owned. So, you know, that's some more evidence that they could potentially be involved. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's definitely interesting. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the clan, you know, I will say, you know, they were very active and, um, you know, the, I don't know, it just seemed like they were, um, they were looking particularly at this family. I think it was like, there were four brothers who were the suspects. And during that time, um, six kids were taken right, you know, right after Jeter was taken, who was the one that was seen getting into the car. Right. Um, you know, but they were all given polygraphs and they all passed. So again, polygraph evidence, you know, isn't necessarily accurate. Um, but they did all pass. And so they decided to close the investigation and seal their findings. Um, you know, why is it sealed? Huh? Why is it sealed? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think that's right. But, um, in 1991, all the, if all the FBI files to this case are open, except for those, that's, that's weird to me. I don't like that. (laughs) Yeah. And then in 1991, during a hearing where um, Wayne Williams was requesting a new trial, Mm -hmm. he, um, you know, there were investigators from both Atlanta and Georgia law enforcement agencies that testified they had little or no knowledge of the um, GBI's and Georgia Bureau of Investigations investigation into the Klan. And at that same hearing, an informant for the GBI reported that Charles Sonder had admitted to killing Jeter uh, while Whitaker, you know, he was the undercover while he was wearing a concealed microphone. And so, you know, again, that was like just brushed under the rug and acted like it wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then it says in May, uh, this was May, 2004. So this was about six months after um you know, the new police chief was, you know, put in place. Uh, they decided to investigate the deaths of five of the victims. So it was Aaron Whitey, Curtis Walker, Yusef Bell, William Barrett, and Patrick Balthazar. Okay. And um, the new police chief Graham said that one of the inv- original investigators in the case said that he doubted that Wayne Williams, you know, the, the who was convicted of the two killings could be blamed for the 22 others. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, but and, but but again, after you know um, two years of investigating, they ended up just dropping the reinvestigation, saying oh. that you know we we dredge up what we had and nothing has panned out. So until something does or additional evidence comes our way or there's forensic mm-hmm. feedback from existing evidence, we will continue to pursue the other cold cases that are within our reach. Mm-hmm. So they're just feeling like there's nowhere else to go. And it's so hard. I mean, again, like I wish, yeah, this case is, this case is hard (laughs) in a lot of ways, but I think it's hard even thinking about the eighties and what we know about like forensics and DNA and stuff now. I mean, they couldn't really, or maybe they didn't know necessarily to look for that. Right. So it's hard. And then there there was a criminal profile of Johnny Douglas and, you know, he believes that law enforcement authorities have some idea of who the other killers are. Mm -hmm. And he said, it isn't a single offender and the truth isn't pleasant, but he wouldn't comment further. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, obviously there, the fiber evidence is, 
interesting. You know, I don't know that it's, I, I don't know that it would have been enough to convict Wayne Williams at this time. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's definitely interesting. And I do, I do definitely think he would have had access to the kids if he was trying to frame himself as like, like, oh, you know, I can make you a star and like, come with me and go to the recording studio. And like, you know, I definitely think there are things that make him a really good suspect. And so, you know, um, and then the fact that his story changed or, you know, you know, I don't know. I, there are many things that make me think he was absolutely a part of it. I just don't mm-hmm. know if that's the whole story. And the yeah. idea that, you know, um, Jeter was seen with this, you know, man who clearly had a, you know, beef with him after he hit him with his car with the go-kart and all that stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. to me, that's really important. That's an important testimony that that witness had, you know, so I don't know. And I get the whole polygraph thing, but I don't think that's enough <laughs> to like rule yeah. them out. Yeah, no, I and, agree. Yeah. And race stuff was, I mean, and it still is in a lot of areas, a big thing. So the idea that the clan would want to you know, kill a bunch of young boys and stop them from becoming grown men. I mean, I, I totally could see that as a viable thing too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. This, there's a lot of layers to this case. Um, and it's, it's, it's really hard to say or no, right. Like what's happening. Um, but it's just, you know, it's just so sad. I mean, how many families were impacted? And I mean, just the Atlanta community in general. I mean, the kids who went to school with these kids, the kids who, yeah. you know, had to fill out the surveys for the FBI. I mean, all of it is just so, 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 so sad. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So I, I definitely don't know if Wayne Williams was guilty of the two he was convicted of or all of them. Or, you know, or if it was the clan for all of them, or maybe he did the two and the clan did the rest. I mean, I have no idea, but yeah, um, it was just such a sad time. And I can't even imagine as a mother, like I would be so afraid to let my kids leave the house at all. Like I wouldn't even yeah. want them walking to school. You know, I mean, it'd be so terrifying to just mm-hmm. see kids being picked up off the street over and over again, like so close together. I mean, yeah. you just would never feel safe. Yeah. Exactly. It's just, well, and even I'm sure like it impacted the community. Like, I mean, you've obviously mentioned, but it probably impacted the community greatly in the sense of like, you know, probably families left, right. Or families felt, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. It's all just, (laughs) it's all just really, really, really sad. So yeah. Was there anything else to it or? (laughs) No, that's all I got for you. All right. Well, friends, um, I know this one's a downer. Like I said, I think it's important to cover it, though. Um, It's important to share these stories sometimes. So um, I guess in terms of housekeeping things, um, we are nearing the end of February. So keep an eye out for our March flight. Oh, my goodness. This year is going by very quickly already. Um, (laughs) And then um, outside of that, you can follow us on Instagram at what the L pod. You can send us a Gmail um, with, you know, topic suggestions, your own personal stories, anything like that at what the L pod at gmail.com. Um, we also um, are going to get our Patreon bonus episode for the month up soon. Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, but outside of that, friends, I just want to say, Thanks for listening and sticking with us. We know this is a long one and that we appreciate you. (laughs) I appreciate you, Alana. I appreciate you, Mama. All right. All right. Bye, Bye, friends.